Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 89 of the show. It's been a couple of weeks since we've had an episode, and we have lots to get into. We have the final two playoff events on the PGA Tour to discuss. Uh, We have crowned a FedEx Cup champion, so we'll get into that. Uh, Major League Baseball standings update. Uh, It's been a couple weeks, so we have a little shift in the standings. Lots of news there to get into as well. And the Around the Island segment is absolutely loaded. The NFL's preseason has officially come to a close, getting ready for the regular season. We have a ton of NFL news to get into uh, regarding uh, preseason uh, injuries and off-the-field stuff, some trades, uh, also some news out of the National Hockey League, the NBA in college football as we have officially started the college football season. So we're going to start off this episode on the PGA Tour. We're going to take it back two weeks, two weekends ago, uh, the BMW Championship that was at the Wilmington Country Club, the south course there in Wilmington, Delaware. It was a par 71, distance was 7,534 yards, so a pretty long course course itself was originally designed back in 1959, but it had to be redesigned in 2021 after a tornado had ripped through the course in August of 2020. So it was rebuilt. The field was only the top 70 players in the FedEx Cup standing. So all the big name guys were out there. It was basically like a major championship. Um, Just top ranked players all over the place. The only one who wasn't was Cameron Smith. He had withdrawn due to hip discomfort. Uh, He was number three in the FedEx Cup standings at the time after the FedEx uh, St. Jude Championship. So he was guaranteed to make the Tour Championship. Uh, There were no cuts at the BMW Championship. All 70 players who started, uh, well, actually 70 started and 69 finished. Um, We'll get into why that is in just a minute. But I had talked about that... Uh, The last two BMW championships and three of the last four had ended in a playoff hole. Uh, We did not see that this year, but uh, still some very good golf. Uh, The winner for this thing received uh, 2,000 points in the FedEx Cup standings, which is obviously very important uh, because the seeding for the Tour Championship Uh, Your starting score was based on where you're at in the FedEx Cup standings. So uh, certainly uh, points were at a premium there uh, at the BMW Championship. And only the top 30 after the BMW Championship, the top 30 in the FedEx Cup standings made the Tour Championship, um, which was the final playoff event. But also the important note with the BMW Championship was that um, the automatic qualifiers for the President's Cup were handed out for the United States team and the international team. So uh, lots riding on the BMW Championship. Uh, Round one uh, didn't really have a whole lot of action. Round two, uh, there was no cuts, like I said, but during round two, Will Zalatoris, who came into this thing fresh off the win at the FedEx St. Jude Championship, number one in the FedEx Cup standings, he actually withdrew. He uh, pulled his back on a drive early in round two, I uh, tried to give it a go on the next hole, but ended up tapping out. Just couldn't do it. So Zalatoris withdrew from that. So that's why only 69 of the 70 golfers that started finished. Uh, round three, we saw something interesting. There was a fan that had, I guess, uh, used one of those remote-controlled balls that you see on uh, TikTok or whatever, had thrown it on the course and kind of rolled it up or remotely controlled the ball up onto the green 
and was rolling it around the hole. Uh, Rory McIlroy was on on the green at the time, saw the ball moving, got pissed off, tried to chase it for a minute before he finally ended up grabbing it and chunking it into the water. So that was uh, pretty interesting and kind of funny if you watch the video. I'm sure you can find it. Um, round four, again, nothing really of note. Um, but at, when it was all said and done, Patrick Cantlay was your winner with a score of 14 under par. All right. He played, uh, played pretty consistent golf all weekend. He shot uh, three under 68s both on Thursday and Friday. Saturday was a six under 65. And then uh, Sunday was a, a two under 69. All right. And he uh, actually won the BMW Championship last year as well. So he became the first ever player to defend uh, a BMW Championship FedEx Cup playoff event. So uh, no surprise to see him in the winner's circle there. Uh, second place was a bit of a surprise. That was Scott Stallings. He crashed the. Uh, the FedEx Cup playoff party, and he finished at 13 under, just one shot back of Cantlay. He too also opened with a pair of three under 68s. He shot a five under 66 in round three, and then matched Cantlay two under 69 in round four. The scorecards for the weekend were almost identical, with the exception of Saturday. Cantlay was one shot better, and that proved to be the difference. But another impressive tournament there for Stallings. Seems to be playing his best golf of his of his career, really, this year. Uh, two-way tie for third. Scotty Scheffler and Xander Shoffley both were at 11 under par. Uh, K.H. Lee, 10 under, uh, along with Corey Connors and Adam Scott. They all finished T5. And then T8 at 9 under par. We had John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Taylor Pendrith, and Joaquin Neiman, right? So... Whereas the FedEx St. Jude Championship the week before that, the leaderboard wasn't really impressive until about Saturday's third round. Uh, the leaderboard for this thing was pretty stacked uh, all the way through. A lot of big-name players up top there, but like I said, in the end, Patrick Cantlay uh, got it done. So that brought us to this past weekend's tournament, which was the Tour Championship. And that was at the East Lake Golf Club in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a par 70. Distance was 7,346 yards. All right, We did not have uh, an episode last week, so we did not have a preview of this. But uh, the FedEx Cup champion uh, has been crowned at the East Lake Golf Club every year since 2005. So this has been the final playoff event uh, for the last 17 years, and it is the oldest golf course in the city of Atlanta. Uh, the field itself, very, very elite. Only the top 30 players in the FedEx Cup standings advanced to this tournament. Uh, of course, all the big-name guys were out there, top-ranked players in the world in the official world golf rankings, with the exception of Will Zalatoris. I mentioned he withdrew in the second round of the BMW Championship. Well, he actually withdrew before this tournament got started uh, because of that back injury. He was number three in the FedEx Cup standings going into the Tour Championship. And uh, so we only had 29 golfers out there um, for this for the Tour Championship, uh, which obviously there's, there's no cuts for this thing. You know, only 29 golfers uh, started and uh, 29 golfers finished. Now the scoring for this thing... Uh, I mentioned, I kind of alluded to, it was a staggered scoring. So based on the standings of the FedEx Cup, uh, the FedEx Cup standings is how you, you got a, a score to start with, to start the tournament. So for instance, coming into this week, uh, the Tour Championship, Scotty Scheffler was number one in the FedEx Cup standings. He started round one at 10 under par. Patrick Cantlay was second. He started at eight under par. Uh, Will Zalatoris was third. He would have started at seven under par had he played. Xander Schauffele was fourth in the standings, so he started at six under par. Sam Burns was fifth. He started at five under par. And then Cameron Smith, Rory McIlroy, Tony Finau, and Sepp Straka were six, seven, eight, and nine in the standings, respectively. They all started at four under. 
as well as Sung J.M. He was 10th in the standings. He also started at 4-under. And then we had five more guys start at 3-under par. That was John Rahm, Scott Stallings, Justin Thomas, Cameron Young, and Matt Fitzpatrick. Uh, the five that started at 2-under par, Max Homa, Hideki Matsuyama, Jordan Spieth, Joaquin Neiman, and Victor Hovland. So they started at 2-under. Then the five that started at 1-under par, Colin Morikawa, Billy Horschel, Tom Hoagie, Corey Connors, and Brian Harmon. And then the guys that started at even par were K.H. Lee, J.T. Poston, Sahith Thigala, Adam Scott, and Aaron Wise. All right, so uh, those guys started like you normally would at even par, 10 shots back of Scotty Scheffler. Myself, personally, I'm not a huge fan of the staggered scoring, uh, but I, I understand it. Uh, especially this year with how dominant Scheffler was um, in the FedEx Cup standings all year. He should certainly be rewarded for that, and he was. He got to start at 10-under. Now, um, that's, that staggered scoring uh, ha- hasn't been around very long. Uh, I think it's only been maybe three to five years that they've started doing that at Eastlake, and uh, when Zalatoris won the Saint Ju- FedEx St. Jude Championship a couple of weeks ago, that was the he overtook first in the FedEx Cup standings, and then after his withdrawal at the BMW, Scheffler's third place finish bumped him back up to first in the FedEx Cup standings. Uh, but that was the first time that Scotty Scheffler had not been number one in the FedEx Cup standings since April. Um, when he won the Masters, he he won that that streak or leading up to the Masters, really, Waste Management Phoenix Open and all that. He um, uh, Dell Technologies match play, I think he won that as well. So uh, he he won like four out of five events that he played in. So he'd been first in the FedEx Cup since April. So he got rewarded to start at ten under. Uh, a couple of storylines, you know, Patrick Cantlay coming into this thing was trying to become the first ever player to win back-to-back FedEx Cups, and he came into this thing with a very legitimate chance starting uh, at eight under par, just two shots back of Scheffler, and then Rory McIlroy was looking to become the first ever three-time winner of the FedEx Cup. Uh, nothing real notable in round one. Round two, uh, we saw Max Homa. He shot an eight under 62. That put him at nine under par after two rounds, which was still 10 shots back of Scotty Scheffler. And he was interviewed after his round, which an eight under round is an amazing round. And to be 10 shots back after two rounds, having shot an eight under, most tournaments that would, that nine under through two rounds would probably put him near the top, especially on a par 70 course. But he voiced his displeasure about it in that interview and was kind of bitching about the staggered scoring. Um, Like I said, had it been a normal tournament, he probably would be near the top there of the leaderboard. But I I get it. I'm kind of with Homa. I think the staggered scoring is is unique, uh, but it certainly gives uh, an unfair advantage to the guys that are ranked higher in the FedEx Cup. Now, the counter-argument would be, well, just play better throughout the rest of the year. Well, that's true, but... Every other tournament starts off at even par, so I don't know why the final tournament starts off with staggered scoring. But So that was round two. Round three, we had some rain come in. It delayed the third round a little bit, and uh, we didn't actually finish the third round until Sunday morning. And then uh, that, that fourth round started. Uh, Roy McIlroy played really well in round three to get himself into the final pairing with Scotty Scheffler. Now, Scotty Scheffler took a six-shot lead into round four, but he had three bogeys in his first five holes, and in that time, Rory had made three birdies, which wiped away that six-shot lead. Those two were tied. Uh, They kind of went back and forth for a little bit before Rory ended up kind of pulling away in this thing. Um, it, It was tough to watch Scheffler collapse almost, um, he did not have his best stuff. Um, he yeah, he bogeyed three of his first six holes. And he only had one birdie on the day. Um, that was a very, very poor round of golf. He actually, Scheffler shot a three over uh, 
73 in round four to to really kind of collapse. And Rory took charge. Like I said, he actually went... Uh, Rory McIlroy went on to win this thing. Let me just start with that. Rory won the tournament um, at 21 under par. All right. He opened the first two rounds with three under 67s. His third round on Saturday uh, into Sunday was a seven under 63, which really catapulted him up to that final pairing and then shot four under 66 in round four, which was enough to surpass Scotty Scheffler, who finished tied for second at 20 under par with uh, Sungjae M. M played uh, really good rounds of golf over the weekend. He opened with the 3 under 67, followed that up with a 5 under 65, and then shot back-to-back 4 under 66s, M did. So good, solid tournament for Sungjae M. Made himself quite a bit of money. And then, like I said, Scotty Scheffler, he also finished at 20 under it was just tough to watch. He's been dominating all year, really dominated, had four wins on tour, came in like a five-week span, and uh, that carried him and uh, played really well last week at the BMW and just really played. Scheffler played really well through the first three rounds. He went 65-66-66, and then that three over 73, that really cost him. I mean, he just played even par on Sunday. He would have won. Uh, but that was not the case. Fourth place was Xander Shoffley at 18 under par, and then two-way tie for fifth at 17 under between Max Homa and Justin Thomas. Uh, tied for seventh at 16 under par, Sepp Straka and Patrick Cantlay. Uh, Cantlay opened and closed with a, a rounds of even par 70 and in between squeezed out a pair of four under 66s. So, he played okay golf, eight under for the tournament, uh, but that was not good enough to win. Ninth place was Tony Finau at 15 under, and 10th was Tom Hoagie at 14 under par. Uh, but with Rory's Rory's six-shot deficit entering the final round was the largest 54-hole deficit in FedEx Cup playoff uh, history uh, for a winner uh, to overcome, so he, he made history there. Um, but Rory, uh, I mentioned it in the storyline just a minute ago, he became the first ever golfer to win the FedEx Cup three times. So very impressive stuff. Uh, Rory winning this thing, it was his third victory of the year. Uh, he, it's, it's actually really good for the PGA Tour. Not that Scheffler's, if he would have won, it wouldn't have been good. But Rory is um, one of the faces of the PGA Tour and has been for a very long time. He's been a strong advocate for the PGA Tour and staying on the PGA Tour, trying to convince golfers not to join the Live Golf Tour that we've seen a lot of them jump ship to. It's basically been mass exodus the last couple months to the Live Golf Tour, which uh, we have. Uh, there's six more names that dropped uh, about joining the Live Tour, one of which is Cameron Smith, uh, the Open Championship winner. So, uh, Rory winning is great for the sport, great for the PGA Tour, uh, since he's such a big advocate. But um, having said all of that, that was the final event of the 2021-2022 PGA Tour season. So it has officially come to an end. Uh, we do not have any PGA Tour golf for a couple of weeks. The 2022-2023 uh, season gets started September 15th through the 18th. Uh, with the Fortinet Championship in Napa, California. So uh, a couple weeks away, we'll do a preview episode on that. And uh, But as of now, that will wrap up the 2021-2022 uh, PGA Tour season with Rory McIlroy as your FedEx Cup champion. But we'll move on to Major League Baseball, do a standings update here in the MLB. Uh, like I mentioned, it's been a couple of weeks since the last episode, so the standings certainly look different now than they did a couple weeks ago. Um, we'll get into all that in just a second. Uh, most teams have played between 127 and 100 to 130 games, so we only got a little over a month left in the baseball season, which uh, doesn't seem like that's the case. We have flown through this baseball season, uh, quickly approaching October baseball. But 
Before we do the standings update, I have to read this stat to you. Uh, I saw it the other day, and it is the most baseball stat that I've ever seen. Okay, so, and some of it has nothing to do with baseball. August 29th, 2001, Serena Williams, the tennis player, wins at the U.S. Open. Albert Pujols hit a home run that night. Vlad Guerrero Sr., Craig Biggio, and Dante Bichette all recorded a hit. So all of those things happened on August 29th of 01. Fast forward to August 29th of 2022, 21 years later to the day. Serena Williams wins at the U.S. Open. Albert Pujols hits a home run that night. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Kevin Biggio, and Bo Bichette all record a hit. Now, of course, Vlad Guerrero Jr. is the son of Vlad Guerrero Sr. Kevin Biggio is the son of Craig Biggio. And Bo Bichette is the son of Dante Bichette. Guerrero Jr., Kevin Biggio, and Bo Bichette are all on the Toronto Blue Jays. So all three of those guys got a hit the same night that Albert Pujols hit a home run, the same night that Serena Williams, the tennis player, won her match at the U.S. Open. Those things all happened 21 years apart. Completely random. Totally random. But I thought that that was something. That is, that, that's a, that's a, a Sports Island baseball stat for you um, that I like to include on here. But uh, moving on to the standings updates, the National League East. The New York Mets uh, are still up top there. Not, not much has changed there. They're 82 and 48. Uh, Max Scherzer, he had 11 strikeouts in his last outing, which was the 110th such game of his career, moving him into a tie with Roger Clemens for third most games in MLB history with at least 10 strikeouts. So uh, he's moving right up the list. He's got a ways to go to, to get to number two. Not sure that he'll do it, but uh guy is an amazing pitcher. The Mets are three games ahead of the Atlanta Braves, who are 79-51. and 51. A week and a half ago, well, about two weeks ago, the Braves absolutely clobbered the Pirates uh, in a matinee matchup which means that the Braves went 7-0 and against the Pittsburgh Pirates this season, uh, which is the first time, believe it or not, this is the very first time in Braves franchise history that they have swept the Pirates in a season series. All seven games against each other in the regular season, the Braves won. First time they've done that against the Pirates. I thought that was very interesting, considering how horrid the Pirates have been uh, for the last, I don't know, five to ten years, uh, and how good Atlanta has been recently. Um, I can't believe that they've never swept Pittsburgh uh, in a season series. Third place in the NL East, the Philadelphia Phillies, 72-57. and They're nine and a half games back of the Mets. Uh, Phillies infielder Alec Bohm became the fifth Phillies player ever to have two homers and six RBIs in a game. He did that against the Mets, believe it or not. Uh, I think that was uh, the week before last. Um, Miami Marlins are 55-74. and 74. Uh, Their starting pitcher, ace Sandy Alcantara, he pitched his fourth complete game of the season the other night, which leads the league. Uh, dude has just been on a whole nother level. It seems he goes at least eight innings every time he pitches. Uh, and then last place in the NL East is the Washington Nationals, 43-86. and 86. They are the worst team in Major League Baseball, have been all year, will continue to be the rest of the year. But over in the National League Central, this is probably uh, one of the bigger changes that we've seen in the last two weeks. The Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals, are up top in the NL Central at 75-55. and 55. Um, Albert Pujols, he hit a pinch hit grand slam. Uh, this was in a game last week. He hit a pinch hit grand slam and Adam Wainwright pitched seven scoreless innings that night 
the Cardinals became the first team in Major League Baseball history to have a 40-year-old hit a grand slam and a 40-year-old throw at least seven shutout innings in the same game. So those two guys are older, but they are helping carry the Cardinals to this division lead in addition to Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. Another interesting fact about Albert Pujols, uh, in a home run just the other night, I think it was a couple of nights ago as I record this, he hit a, a home run off the 450th different pitcher of his career, which is an MLB record for most pitchers that you've homered against. So pretty interesting stat there. What's what's interesting about these standings right now is that the Cardinals are six games in front of the Milwaukee Brewers. Brewers have not been playing well at all. Uh, they're 68 and 60, like I said, six games back. That That is one of the bigger changes that we've seen. Um, on recent episodes, that division lead has all been within a game or two. The Chicago Cubs are third at 55 and 75. Uh, Cincinnati Reds, 51 and 77. So they're, you know, they're, uh, you know, obviously they've been out of it all year. But the Pittsburgh Pirates are, are still in last place. They're 49 and 80. Now with the Pirates, their rookie shortstop O'Neill Cruz. He's a six foot seven shortstop, left-handed hitter. Guy's just an absolute monster. He the other night, I think it was last week, he hit the hardest ball ever recorded in the Statcast era. The exit velocity on that hit was one hundred twenty-two point four miles an hour. Hardest hit ball Statcast has ever recorded, and it only went for a single. He hit it so hard uh, that it bounced off the wall. I think it bounced off the wall in the outfield and came right back to the outfielder for only a single. So that's... He also, the other night, he had three... I think he had three hits in one game that were all uh, over 115-mile-an-hour exit velo. Uh, The guy's just a monster when he hits it. Wouldn't want to get in front of it. Uh, But moving over to the National League West... Uh, this thing is all but wrapped up. Uh, truthfully, I'm not even sure how the hell the, the Dodgers haven't closed it out. But uh, Los Angeles is 90 and 38. All right. They are the first team in the majors to reach 90 wins. And uh, they are certainly the best team in Major League Baseball at the moment. They are, uh, they've won eight out of their last 10. They're 20 games. You heard that right. 20 games ahead of the San Diego Padres, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, I can't believe this division is not technically clinched yet. Uh, but there are 20 games in front of the Padres who are 71 and 59, all right? Padres, they made that trade for Juan Soto, and it really hasn't paid off like they thought. Um, they haven't closed the division lead. In fact, it's gotten larger uh, since they've gotten Soto, but uh, that certainly isn't the problem. San Francisco Giants are third at 61 and 66. Uh, they're not making the playoffs. They've only won twice in their last 10. Arizona Diamondbacks, 60 and 67. And then Colorado Rockies are 56 and 74. Over in the American League, the American League East. This has gotten interesting, right? The Yankees have been up by 100 games all year. Um, but the Yankees. They're 78 and 51. They're only six and a half games in front of the Tampa Bay Rays. Okay. This division is tightening up. Uh, The Yankees have lost three in a row as I record this. The Tampa Bay Rays have won eight out of their last 10. So that division is shrinking, right? Uh, Nestor Cortez, the Yankees pitcher, got put on the 15 day IL uh, with an injury. So he's going to be missed for the next uh, couple weeks. But. The Rays are closing in, and don't count out the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, they're 70 and 58. They're only seven and a half games back of the Yankees, so just a game behind the Rays. Uh, certainly, I think Toronto is better than Tampa, so keep an eye on that. Uh, both of those teams are within striking distance now of the Yankees when it didn't look like that was going to be even possible. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles are 67 and 61, somehow still hanging around. They're going to be playing meaningful games in September uh, for the first time in a while. So um, they've been 
kind of an exciting young team. And then the Boston Red Sox, man, they've been camped out in last place in the AL East for uh, at least the last month, uh, maybe more. They're 62 and 67, 16 games back for the Yankees. They are not making the playoffs. The American League Central uh, is probably, in terms of the top three teams in each division, it's the tightest division race in Major League Baseball, the American League Central. Uh, the Cleveland Guardians are up top at the moment at 68-59. and 59. They're two games in front of the Minnesota Twins, who are 66-61. and 61. And then the Chicago White Sox are 63-65. and 65. All right, they've lost four in a row. They've only won twice in their last 10. They did sign shortstop Elvis Andrews to a contract after he was released by Oakland a couple weeks ago. Um, now, this stat is another baseball stat that is just simply preposterous. Uh, it, it came out, I saw it when it was, uh, I guess it was two games ago, uh, a few nights ago, after Chicago was sitting at 63-63. and 63, All right, they're 63-65 and 65 as I record this, but I saw this stat uh, that said the White Sox are 63 and 63 this season. The first half of the year they went 46 and 46. Second half they've gone 17 and 17. And in there, so they're 500 all the way around this year. Total season, first half, second half. This was again a few nights ago. And then in their last 18,028 games since the year 1906. Their record, if you're wondering, 9,014 wins, 9,014 losses, 500, right? Like, they're 500 any which way you slice it, including dating back uh, over 100 years ago. So um, how about that for a stat? Uh, but like I said, that, that was that's a couple days old. Uh, they've added two more losses since then, so... They're a little under 500 this year, which kind of skews those numbers. But for a moment, those numbers were accurate. Uh, but that division, like I said, the White Sox are five and a half games back of the Guardians. So the top three teams are all within five and a half games right now, which again is the closest division race between the top three teams in the each division. Uh, Kansas City Royals are 52 and 77. And then the Detroit Tigers are 50 and 79. Over in the American League West, the Houston Astros. Not much has changed here. They're 83 and 47. Uh, they've gotten a little bigger lead. Um, last, I guess it was a week and a half ago, the Astros beat the White Sox 21 to 5. All right. That was three touchdowns the Astros put up. But the bad news is that they just placed Justin Verlander on the 15-day IL with a calf injury. So Verlander is currently the leader in the clubhouse for the AL Cy Young Award. And uh, he's going to miss the next couple of weeks, maybe more, with that calf injury. So that is not good news for the Astros. But they are 11 and a half games clear of the Seattle Mariners, who are 71 and 58. All right, Mariners still playing some good baseball. Their rookie pitcher, George Kirby, he became the first pitcher since 1988 to begin an appearance, throwing 24 strikes on his first 24 pitches. Uh, very impressive stuff. He's turned into a great young pitcher. Um, and then, of course, all-star Julio Rodriguez. He became the first Seattle Mariner with 20 homers and 20 steals in a season since Mike Cameron in 2002, uh, which ironically enough, I think was around the last time the Mariners made the playoffs. Um, Julio, though, he signed a 14-year contract extension with the Seattle Mariners with a maximum value of uh, over $400 million. Now, there's $210 million in guaranteed money. So this kid's, I think he's 21 years old, made the all-star team as a rookie, and uh, just been a phenomenal player this year. So he gets rewarded with a, a $400 million contract. Um, my Texas Rangers are third in the AL West at 58 and 70. 
they are not playing good baseball. They're well under 500. They've lost three in a row. Um, but they did become the first team in the majors this year to have four players with at least 20 home runs. One of those players is Adolis Garcia. He was actually the first player in Major League Baseball this year to be a member of the 2020 club, which is the 20 homers and 20 steals. I just mentioned Julio Rodriguez and the Mariners did that, but Odolis Garcia actually was the first one to do it, and then Julio was the second. Odolis Garcia also had a 21 or 22-game hitting streak before it ended, so uh, the Rangers have some players. Uh, Corey Seager's closing in on 30 home runs this year. Um, they're an okay, you know, it, pitching has been our problem. It's certainly not been offense. Um, Rangers have only scored seven fewer runs than the Astros this entire year, um, which is second in the division. So they're scoring runs. The problem is, is that they've given up 576 runs, which is second most in the division behind Oakland. So, um, if Rangers can get some pitching in here, then... I think they, they'll probably be a playoff team potentially next year. Los Angeles Angels are fourth in the AL West at uh, 56 and 73. Um, Mike Trout became, well, he, he recorded his 1,500 career hit since the last episode. So he's halfway to 3,000. Uh, his age is kind of, you know... Get age and health is is going to be the key with him. All right, uh, he his health has kind of taken a decline with his back situation. So I don't know if he'll become a member of the three thousand hit club. You'd hope he would. You figure he would, uh, but he seems to be missing more and more time now uh, regularly with injuries. But uh, the Oakland A's are last in the AL West at forty nine and eighty one. They are the worst team in the American League but they are still six games better than the Washington Nationals. So uh, that's the standings update. Like I said, a little bit changed there uh, since the last episode. Um, The wild card standings, uh, as they sit, um, you know, it's, it's becoming a really tight wild card race, which is always good. It's what you'd hope for. Um, Currently in the American League, your three wild card teams, Tampa Bay, Seattle, and Toronto. All right. Baltimore's three games back of a wild card. So too is the Minnesota Twins. And then the Chicago White Sox are seven games back. So uh realistically, uh, you know, White Sox gotta get on their horse, but those are the only three teams that could catch Toronto, Seattle, and Tampa. And I don't think any of those three are getting caught. So uh, it's looking like your playoff teams in the AL are Houston, New York, Cleveland, Tampa, Seattle, Toronto, maybe Baltimore, maybe Minnesota overtakes Cleveland, who knows, but that's how it sits. And then the uh, National League division leaders, the Dodgers, the Mets, and the Cardinals, I think all three of those teams are going to end up winning their division uh, the wild card teams at the moment, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and San Diego. Uh, certainly think Atlanta is going to be in the playoffs. Philadelphia is looking pretty good. They just got Bryce Harper back from the injured list. And then San Diego with Juan Soto and that lineup that they have. I don't see how they miss the playoffs. But Milwaukee Brewers are on the outside looking in. They're two games back. And the San Francisco Giants are eight and a half games back of the wild card spot. I don't see them closing that gap. Milwaukee is the only one that could spoil the wild card party. Uh, and if I had to pick a team out of the three that are in there right now to miss, I think Philadelphia misses. Atlanta, San Diego would be in uh, with Milwaukee. But again, all of these are close races. We still have, you know, 30 to 33 games left to be played for most teams. So that's still a full month of baseball. So uh, we got a lot going on in Major League Baseball, and we'll definitely check in next week to see how uh, the standings look. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. It is uh, very jam-packed with info this week, Uh, several different sports to get into. 
most notably the National Football League. We're going to start off there before we get into the preseason notes with regards to uh, the preseason ending and some injuries and stuff like that. Uh, last week we had uh, an update on the Deshaun Watson saga, right? If you recall, uh, he was only suspended six games with no fine. The NFL appealed that suspension, seeking a stiffer punishment. Um, well, uh, this past week, it was announced that Deshaun Watson and the NFL had agreed to an 11-game suspension and a $5 million fine for violations of the NFL's personal conduct policy. So the NFL did get their wish. Their appeal was upheld, adding five additional games to Watson's suspension for a total of 11 games, plus adding a $5 million fine on top of that. So uh, with how tough and rugged the AFC is, this all but eliminates the Cleveland Browns from the playoffs this year. Um, there's absolutely no way that Cleveland makes the playoffs when Watson is only playing in uh, six games. Uh, Jacoby Brissett is set to be the starting quarterback, and so I just don't see how the Browns make the playoffs. They certainly have a lot of talent, especially on the defense. Uh, with Miles Garrett and Denzel Ward leading the way, but I I just don't see the Browns making the playoffs. But either way, uh, think of it what you will. Deshaun Watson uh, is suspended for eleven games and has a five million dollar fine, and that is the official ruling. But uh, we move on to the preseason. Um, much like the PGA Tour that we already discussed, the NFL's preseason has come to an end. So uh, we'll put a bow on that. Um, you know. There, the Baltimore Ravens, uh, they won their Week 2 and Week 3 preseason games, making it their 22nd and 23rd consecutive preseason wins. They just keep adding to that NFL record that they already own. And just a reminder that the Ravens have not lost a preseason football game since 2016. Very impressive. I know the preseason doesn't mean anything, but clearly... Um, you don't win 23 preseason games in a row uh, on accident. So um, that just goes to show you that the Baltimore is perennially a good team. And believe it or not, this year we actually had six teams close out the preseason undefeated. Now that's a little easier to do with only three preseason games now these days. But uh, those six teams are, of course, the Baltimore Ravens, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Las Vegas Raiders. Now, the Steelers are impressive because they've, you know, Kenny Pickett, rookie quarterback, first-round pick, he's looked very good. Uh, he may actually end up being the starter a lot sooner than we thought. Um, so you have the Ravens, the Steelers, Vegas Raiders. Then the Chicago Bears, the Houston Texans, and the New York Jets. Uh, Chicago, you know, might possibly be a 500 team this year in the regular season. I think they'll be slightly under 500. Uh, but the Houston Texans and the New York Jets, uh, both of those teams were really bad last year. They owned the uh, 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 top 10 picks, you know, top five picks. I think Houston picked third. All right. So uh, in the draft, and Jets had two picks inside the top 10. So, um, you know, not... Not great team, so impressive to see them go undefeated in the preseason. But the carnage that we got from uh, the remnants of training camp plus the preseason games, uh, there's quite a list of significant injuries, and we'll go through those now, starting with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, their offensive guard, Aaron Stinney, he tore his ACL and MCL, so he's out for the year. He's the second starting offensive lineman to be out for the year. Of course, they lost their center, Ryan Jensen, at the beginning of training camp. And then they're all pro offensive tackle, Tristan Wirfs. He's also been dealing with an injury. Um, he's not guaranteed to be out there for week one. It appears he will. But either way, that's a problem for the Buccaneers uh, because Tom Brady needs time to throw. And if he's missing his offensive line, uh, they already lost two of their starters in free agency from last year. And, um, so if, if he doesn't have an offensive line, he's not going to have time to throw, and he is the least mobile quarterback in the NFL at 45 years old. So 
that's a problem there in Tampa Bay. Um, I, I, you know, they're still obviously one of the better teams in the NFC, but I don't know that you can say that they're the best team in the NFC. Carolina Panthers rookie quarterback Matt Corral, he suffered a Liz Frank injury in his foot. Uh, it's going to cause him, it's significant enough that it, it, he's going to miss all season, which, you know, they have Baker Mayfield, Matt, uh, Sam Darnold, so Matt Corral wasn't really going to play probably at all or very much this year, uh, but it's still a tough way to uh, start your rookie season. The New England Patriots, they lost corner Joan Williams. He had season-ending shoulder injury, and they also lost their rookie wide receiver from the second round, Tyquan Thornton. He broke his collarbone, so he's going to be out for eight weeks, so he should miss the first probably six games or so. The Los Angeles Chargers, rookie running back Isaiah Spiller, uh, he injured his ankle in their week two preseason game against the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, he's might still be back for the start of the season. Keep an eye on that. He's their backup running back behind Austin Eckler. But the more important injury out of Los Angeles uh, for the Chargers was cornerback J.C. Jackson. He had minor ankle surgery uh, for an injury. He's going to miss two to four weeks, probably not going to be available week one. They signed him to a massive deal. I think it was in the neighborhood of like 74 to $76 million. So uh, that's a big hit on that defense for the Chargers, especially in that division that they play in. Uh, back over to the NFC, the New York Giants. Their uh, number four overall pick, defensive end Kayvon Thibodeau, he sprained his MCL, so he's going to be out for three to four weeks. Don't expect him uh, to be ready for week one. And then um, their... I think he's probably their third or fourth string wide receiver, Colin Johnson, towards Achilles. Uh, he's a big six foot five target. Uh, he's going to miss the season, obviously, with that injury. The New Orleans Saints, their rookie first round offensive tackle, Trevor Penning, uh, looked like the real deal in training camp. Very aggressive, uh, just a brute up front. He tore a ligament in his foot. He's going to be out indefinitely. Uh, they didn't say all year, they just said indefinitely. So uh, I would expect that we would see Penning, uh, but probably not until at least halfway through the season, maybe closer towards the end. Um, but he's just a nasty offensive tackle that you love to have on your team. And then the most notable injury so far is my Dallas Cowboys all-pro offensive tackle Tyron Smith. He suffered an avulsion fracture in his left knee. Basically, his hamstring came detached from the back of his knee. He's already had surgery to fix it, but he's going to be out for three to four months. Uh, they estimate his time back in the lineup as December, assuming all goes well. So that is pretty much the end of the regular season. I would hope that uh, he'd make it out there for the last few games, but that might be wishful thinking at the moment. So hopefully Tyron Smith heals up. He's only played in 10 games over the last two years, so... It's not like he's been out there very much as it is, but um, still something to keep an eye on. Uh, Cowboys are probably going to have to start first-round rookie Tyler Smith at left tackle after he's been working out at left guard all preseason. Um, so those are your notable injuries. Uh, the Carolina Panthers, they named Baker Mayfield their starting quarterback over Sam Darnold. He started the third preseason game, looked pretty good. Uh, this is notable because Carolina plays the Cleveland Browns in week one, all right? Uh, Baker Mayfield's former team is who he'll get to start against here in a couple of weeks. And he joins uh, Denver Broncos quarterback Russell Wilson as another quarterback who is playing on a new team this year who gets to play against his former team uh, in week one. Of course, the Broncos play the Seahawks in week one. Uh, a couple of trades, um, the Carolina Panthers, speaking of them, they acquired wide receiver LaVisca Chenault from the Jacksonville Jaguars in exchange for a 2023 seventh-round pick and a 2024 sixth-round pick. So not a high cost. Chenault's got speed. He's an elusive playmaker. You can line him up uh, outside in the slot. Hell, you can line him up in the backfield. He's technically coded as a wide receiver, but he kind of does a little bit of everything. And then the other trade, the Vegas Raiders, they traded their backup quarterback, Nick Mullins, to the Minnesota Vikings for a seventh-round pick in 2024. Not really notable. 
Um, other than the fact that the Vikings took Kellen Mond in the third round a couple of drafts ago to be their backup. So I'm not sure why they would bring in Nick Mullins. Uh, he's a veteran, but you're, you don't bring Mullins in without him at least having a chance to compete for that backup spot behind Kirk Cousins. So that was just interesting to note there. Uh, we did have one free agent signing. Defensive end Trey Flowers signed with the Miami Dolphins. Uh, he's two-time Super Bowl champion with the New England Patriots. Played on the Detroit Lions past couple years, so he heads back over to the AFC East. Now, I came across this graphic. This is the final piece of NFL news. Uh, I came across this graphic that showed the top 10 most followed NFL players on the Fox Sports app. All right, and I'll go down from 10 to 1. Number 10, Devontae Adams. Number 9, Ezekiel Elliott. Number 8, Cam Newton, who's not even signed to a roster right now. Number 7, Joe Burrow. Number 6, C.D. Lamb. Number five, Russell Wilson. Number four, Patrick Mahomes. Number three, Aaron Rodgers. Number two, Dak Prescott. And number one, Tom Brady. Now, I probably would have guessed at least seven of those, eight of those. I certainly wouldn't have guessed Cam Newton. Um, But it's pretty cool to see that three Dallas Cowboys made that list. Uh, They are America's team. Um, You know, Dak Prescott's obviously a great leader. Uh, C.D. Lamb's up and coming, be a top five wide receiver this year potentially, and then Zeke still, still a very polarizing player. Um, but it's just cool. I just thought that was interesting to um, see that list of the top ten most followed players on the Fox Sports app. But we'll move over real quick to the National Hockey League. A few free agent signings or re-signings. The Detroit Red Wings, they re-signed their young forward, Philip Zadina, first-round pick from a few years ago. Three years, $5.5 million. The Carolina Hurricanes, they signed veteran forward Paul Stastny, one year, $1.5 million. And then another veteran forward, Phil Kessel, he got a one-year, $1.5 million deal by the, uh, the Vegas Golden Knights. So Kessel moves over uh, to Vegas. The Calgary Flames, they had the biggest free agent signing of the last couple of weeks. They are the winners of the Nazem Kadri sweepstakes. Seven years, $49 million. All right, that's a lot of money for Nazem Kadri. Of course, he just won a Stanley Cup with Colorado. It was rumored that Kadri was going to play uh, either in New York, uh, either re-sign with Colorado, go to the New York Islanders. Uh, those were the two favored spots, but the Flames came in as the highest bidder, and so I would certainly look for him to play on a line with uh, their other new acquisition, Jonathan Huberdeau. We did have a trade sticking with the, the Calgary Flames. In order to clear the cap space, the salary cap, to sign Nazem Kadri for $7 million a year, uh, the Flames traded forward Sean Monahan and a conditional first-round pick in 2025 to the Montreal Canadiens in exchange for future considerations. So they basically gave up one of their um, top nine forwards and a first-round pick to the Canadiens in order to eat that contract. So um, interesting trade there, but they had to do it in order to clear the cap space to sign Nazem Kadri. So they basically incentivized that to the Canadiens by adding a first-round pick. Some other NHL news, Uh, the NHL announced that the city of Nashville, Tennessee, home of the Nashville Predators, uh, Bridgestone Arena, is going to host the 2023 NHL Draft as well as the 2023 NHL Awards at the end of the season. So it'll be the first time since 2006 that the same city is going to hold both the draft and the awards show. So I just thought that was interesting. And then the final piece of NHL news, we did have a retirement. Not really um, noteworthy unless you really follow the NHL, but forward Kyle Turris. He announced his retirement from the NHL after 14 years. He played in uh, 776 games, had 168 goals, 257 assists, 425 total points in those 776 games. He was actually the third overall pick in the 2007 NHL draft. 
Uh, never really close to winning a Stanley Cup. Uh, he played on some pretty bad teams. He spent most of his career uh, with the Ottawa Senators, Arizona Coyotes. Did play a few years in Nashville with those Predators and then finished up last year with the Edmonton Oilers. So three of those four teams haven't been anywhere close to the Stanley Cup final uh, in recent years. Uh, or since he be- entered the league in 07, the only team that has was the Nashville Predators, and that was within the last several years while he was there. So, um, But either way, uh, still a good player, long career. Uh, just wanted to note that retirement. Moving over real quick to the NBA, uh, the LA Lakers and the Utah Jazz. They were expected to finalize a trade that would send Patrick Beverly to the Lakers in exchange for Talon Tucker-Horton and Stanley Johnson. So Beverly's a great defender. I think he's going to fit well on the Lakers. Of course, the Lakers still have LeBron, Anthony Davis, and uh, Russell Westbrook. But uh, those are all really good offensive players. Uh, A couple of them can, well, all three of them really can rebound as well. But Beverly's a great uh, defender, so I think he'll fit in nicely, uh, especially in that competitive Western Conference. The Lakers... Uh, really needed to make a move to improve the defensive side of the basketball. Uh, The New York Knicks, they have re-signed their young, very talented uh, guard, R.J. Barrett. Four-year rookie extension that could be worth up to $120 million. So big money for the young guy. Uh, He was, I think, the second overall pick three drafts ago. Uh, so he's had a good start to his career, and he is being rewarded uh, with a $120 million contract. Now, the biggest news from the NBA uh, was last week, it was some injury news. An Oklahoma City Thunder rookie center, Chet Holmgren. He was the number two overall pick in the NBA draft out of Gonzaga. Uh, he suffered a Frank injury in his foot while playing in a pro-am charity game. He went up to go try and block LeBron James' layup and uh, came down and hurt his foot. Now, the injury is serious enough that he's going to miss the entire season, all right? That is just horribly unfortunate for the Thunder. Uh, The Thunder do have about 100 first-round picks over the next uh, uh, five to seven years, so they're complete rebuild mode, but that rebuild certainly expedited with the selection of Chet Holmgren. Uh, the problem is, is they're not going to have him at all this year. And it just sucks that it happened in a meaningless game. It wasn't even like a preseason game or something like that. It was straight-up charity game pro-am event. So uh, very unfortunate news there out of Oklahoma City. Uh, but we'll move over to college football Uh, This past weekend, we opened the season, college football. They call it week zero, right? It's the week before um, all of the games get started, which is this weekend. Uh, We did have a handful of games last weekend. We did have a game in Ireland between Northwestern and Nebraska. It was a Big Ten matchup. Those two teams played in Dublin, uh, Ireland, I believe it was Dublin. And uh, just very cool... um, Northwestern's helmets had a had an Irish theme, Irish flag theme. It was very, very cool that uh, college football is going international as well. And, um, yeah, just it was a good week zero, uh, some exciting games. But uh, this week is when the rest of uh, all of the top-ranked teams will play starting this week, uh, headlined by a, a terrific matchup between Notre Dame and Ohio State. Uh, so keep an eye on that. That's going to be a big game. But, uh, yeah, so we're, we're officially in college football season. Just a couple pieces of college football news. The first deals with Alabama and their head coach, Nick Saban. Uh, those two have agreed on an eight-year contract extension that's worth $93.6 million. That's an average annual value of $11.7 million per year for Nick Saban to coach Alabama. And uh, obviously, nobody's going to debate that. Saban is worth every penny of that. By far the best coach in college football. Probably the best coach college football has ever seen. Um, I think he's won five national titles. Uh, Just ridiculous. Um, You know, Alabama is an NFL factory. 
and that's in large part to Nick Saban's coaching. Now, the interesting thing about this contract is that uh, Saban is in his early, I think he's about 70 years old or so, almost 70. So this contract's going to take him into his late 70s by the time it's expired. Uh, he doesn't look it, uh, but he, he is getting up there in age. So, But as long as Nick Saban's the head coach of Alabama, Alabama is going to be in the top five of any rankings that you would see preseason or end of season. So uh, that's just something to note there. And then um, the last piece of college football news uh, is another graphic that I came across, and it deals with the most watched college football teams last year in 2021. Now, these numbers that I'm going to tell you are the average number of weekly viewers per team. All right, so um, average number of weekly viewers. Number one was Ohio State at 5.22 million. Number two was Michigan, 4.74 million. Number three was Alabama, 4.64 million. Number five, uh, number four rather, Penn State, 3.87 million. Number five, Georgia, 3.61 million. Number six, Oklahoma, 3.46 million. Number uh, eight is Auburn, 3.22. And number nine, Michigan State, 2.89. North uh, Notre Dame, 2.84, 2.84, Oregon, 2.57, Nor- um, Wisconsin, 2.41, Nebraska, 2.29, and then my Texas Longhorns are at 2.26 million. Right after them, Florida, 2.21, uh, Arkansas, 2.03, and LSU, 1.9 million. So, uh, those are just the average number of viewers per week. I just I thought that was interesting. Um, certainly, all the top ranked programs uh, are ones that I just listed. I did find it interesting that Texas A and M and Clemson uh, did not make uh, the top. What is that? Uh, Sixteen. A uh, and M is seventeenth. Clemson is nineteenth. All right. So, um, I just thought that that was. Uh, something to note based on the average number of, of viewers uh, per team. You know, you certainly would have guessed a lot of those teams, um, a lot of recent national champions. But, um, yeah, it'll be an exciting college football season as we move forward here. Uh, lots of big games to get into this week, and um, we'll kind of uh, keep you updated throughout the college football season as we'll do some some rankings updates Um as we as we go through the season, similarly to what we do uh, with our standings updates uh, in Major League Baseball. In fact, while we're talking about it, we'll go ahead and do our first rankings for college football, uh, the AP Top Twenty Five preseason poll. All right, this is the the AP Top Twenty Five. Uh, number one, Alabama. Number two, Ohio State. Number three, Georgia. Number four, Clemson. Number five, Notre Dame. Number six, Texas A&M. Number seven, Utah. Number eight, Michigan. Number nine, Oklahoma. Number 10, Baylor. Number 11, Oregon. Number 12, Oklahoma State. 13 is North Carolina State. 14 is USC. 15, Michigan State. 16, Miami 17, Pitt, 18, Wisconsin, 19, Arkansas, 20, Kentucky, 21, Ole Miss, 22, Wake Forest, 23, Cincinnati, 24, Houston, and 25, BYU. All right, so uh, some notables. Uh, I certainly think Texas, I think my Longhorns will be in the top 25 by the end of the year. Uh, Iowa is always a good bet. Uh, Penn State, LSU, neither of those teams made the poll preseason. So, uh, you know, look for those teams to kind of make some noise uh, during the season. But uh, obviously these are going to change every week. Um, so 
Uh, big game, like I said, to start off this week, Ohio State versus Notre Dame. That's number two versus number five. So some serious playoff implications on the line in that one. Uh, so, but like I said, we'll get you we'll get you caught up uh, on the rankings each week as we progress through the college football season. Uh, but that is going to wrap up the 89th episode of the Sports Island podcast. Um, like I said, it was a busy episode, had a lot of information to go over. Um, but uh, we're done with golf for a couple of weeks, but we still have Major League Baseball as that season winds down. And uh, NFL is is on a two-week break, about, well, about a week and a half break or so, maybe two weeks until we get started there. Uh, that Thursday, September 8th is the opening night in the NFL. So we've got a couple weeks before that. Get your fantasy football drafts in. Um, and then, but college football week one starting up this week. So, uh, certainly a lot of entertaining, uh, football to watch this weekend. So, uh, be sure and, uh, check that out this week and, uh, we will check back in, uh, on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.